0: And Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And so we continue the story that Jordan began last week from Acts chapter 3. A crippled man was healed through the name of Jesus. The one who, as Peter told his audience, gave life to the world, but was killed by the religious authorities and the Roman government. The power that accomplished the cure was not Peter and John, But it happened in Jesus's name. It was the power of the risen Christ. And now here in chapter 4, the Sadducees object. They don't believe in resurrections. And so they're upset that a risen Jesus is being preached. And it's not just resurrections that are their concern. It's specifically this Jesus dude. Because Annas, the senior ex-high priest, and Caiaphas, the high priest, are present at this supreme court hearing and they had just a few weeks prior thought they had gotten rid of jesus but now people are gravitating to this jesus and the claim is made that the man jesus that they lynched with the government sanction has been raised by god from the dead and by his name jesus this lame man was healed they're claiming that the resurrection of jesus changes everything And now if this court repudiates Jesus by which this man was healed, then Peter and John threaten that healing from the spiritual disease of sin and deliverance from the coming judgment will also be denied the nation. So the religious establishment needs to act quickly because 3,000 were converted after Peter preached at Pentecost and 5,000 just repented right before the very seat of the religious establishment, the temple. But uh, we find out in verses 14 and 16 of our gospel reading that Tom just read that they couldn't say anything (laughs) because they were seeing the evidence right before their eyes. Standing next to Peter and John was the man who had been healed and their crime, a good deed done to a cripple. The authorities are backed into a corner by two uneducated men who made the powerful establishment look powerless and confused. So they huddle up and they decide not to arrest Peter and John, at at least not this time. I mean, Acts chapter 5 is going to be another story. Instead, they charge the men to cease and desist from speaking to anyone of Jesus' name. And that's when Peter and John respond, we can't keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. In fact, the Greek word in that declaration is one that we would translate apostasy. In other words, what they're saying is to keep quiet about what we have seen and heard is essentially to deny Jesus. Well, there was nothing the religious authorities could answer, at least for now, especially given the response of the crowds. It is interesting that neither on this occasion nor any subsequent occasion did the Sanhedrin take any serious action to disprove the Apostles' central affirmation, the resurrection of Jesus. Because if they had succeeded in doing that, the popular movement would have collapsed. Though the risen body of Jesus had disappeared and could not be produced, the Apostles claimed that Jesus was alive again was being publicly confirmed by the miracle of healing that had been done in his name. Jesus had supported his teaching by the mighty works he had performed, and now Peter and John are doing the same. And the backlash that Jesus experienced is now being experienced by his followers. You see, the disciples are discovering that if the word is boldly proclaimed in the context of a deed that was boldly done, The church will get itself into hot water. In fact, one way to tell if the church is being faithful is whether or not it is suffering persecution at the hands of the ruling principalities and powers. It's to be expected that when the church does what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, citing prophecy, when he said, Repentance and forgiveness will be preached in Christ's name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things that we're going to get in trouble. So here, there before the Sanhedrin, and here we are in the 21st century, witnesses testifying that there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which the world is saved from sin and evil and death. But when anyone does that, watch out. We have to ask ourselves if we are up for the consequences of resisting the principalities and powers by demonstrating loyalty to the name that is above every name. And we shouldn't be surprised by opposition when it comes, as Stephen found out a bit later in the book of Acts. Jesus told us to love our enemies, no doubt because he knew we were going to make some. Jesus didn't get crucified for saying and doing what pleased everyone. To insist that the way of Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the definitive truth about God, is not popular in our 21st century pluralist culture. And this raises some tough questions that people ask about those who never hear the gospel before they they die, or about those who are reared in other religions. But over the years, uh, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, I'm not God the referee. Jesus only told me to be a witness to these things. How God is going to get people to navigate Jesus as the only way to the Father, well, that's for God to decide. But here's the thing that we learn from this passage in Acts. If we are going to tell people that Jesus is the only way, then the words need to be backed up by life. Proclamation without demonstration is powerless. The particularity of our message, that only by the name of Jesus can people be saved, is scandalous. But it is equally scandalous on our part if it is not demonstrated in our actions. You know, after the showdown with the authorities, Peter and John reported back to the church, and the believers praised God and asked God for more boldness to speak in the face of opposition to be accompanied by more evidence of the risen Jesus through healings and signs and wonders. They didn't ask for divine protection. They didn't ask for special privileges from the government, from the authorities. They asked God for the power to speak God's word with all boldness. The church turns to the risen and ascended Christ, the same God who created the world and all of its inhabitants, who holds all things together within his power even in the face of persecution of God's people. You see, this New Testament church was convinced that it was serving the one who is the resurrected, ascended Lord of the cosmos. But this wasn't just a spiritual claim. In our gospel passage, the risen Jesus goes to great lengths to demonstrate that his was a physical resurrect, resurrect, resurrection. Sorry. You see, uh, the one who eats fish with his disciples is the one who invites his followers to demonstrate his resurrection in their embodied existence by feeding the world's hungry. The one who broke the bonds of death calls his followers to break the bonds of injustice and oppression. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service. Now, we no longer have a Jesus who will sit among us and eat fish with us but we do have a jesus who comes to us in the bread and the wine of the eucharist so how is this risen christ going to be seen let's be honest Uh, there's going to be there will always be and have been still are many who will not believe unless they can see first whether that's a doubting thomas whether it's the incredulous disciples in our gospel story who think that they've seen a ghost, or whether it's many of our contemporaries. And and though we don't get to see the physical appearance of the risen Christ, many people in our time need to see and touch in order to believe. And that's why Jesus does now what he was preparing his disciples to do when he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. He sends us into the world as the Father sent him into the world. You are witnesses of these things, he tells his disciples, and us. In Matthew's gospel account, the command is, go make disciples. And the only disciples he has are embodied ones. In the same way, empowered by the same Spirit who sent Christ into the world and who animated the church in Acts, The church today must become the gospel in the flesh. We must become the good news that is not only heard, but seen and touched. You know, the classic definition of a sacrament, uh, like Eucharist or baptism, is that it is a visible sign of God's invisible grace. The bread and the wine are visible signs of God's invisible grace. In Vatican Council II, the Roman Catholic Church called the church the arch sacrament of the world. If we, the church, are to be the arch sacrament of the world, then you and I are sacramentals. We live in an era when teenagers spend an average of seven and a half hours a week on the screen, whose generation sees half of its parents' parents' marriages breaking up where one of every four kids under 18 is being raised by a single parent. So the question that many are asking is, will you be there for me? Not what is the meaning of life, but will you be there for me? And it's a generation of folks who are skeptical about all institutions, including the church. You know, in two thousand seventy 70% of Americans were members of houses of worship. Last year, that fell below 50 percent for the first time what this world needs is sacramentals visible tangible signs of god's invisible presence and grace in a world that often signifies little else but mass shootings racial tension failed governments food insecurity and climate change we the church whom jesus has sent into the world can report that we have seen the reality of the risen Christ, evidences of the new creation that his resurrection makes possible. But the world's response is like a doubting Thomas. Show me. For unless I see what you have been talking about, I will not believe. We have been sent as the Father sent the Son, as the Word became flesh, We have indeed seen and been touched by the risen Christ. We have been breathed upon and been empowered by the Spirit. But the question remains, are we there for others to see and touch? Is our report credible? Does our witness deserve to be believed? Does the name of Jesus really mean anything tangible? You know, a student from Ghana uh, who was in the U.S., was asked what possible contribution American Christians could make to the Christian community in Africa. And after he thought a bit, he answered, you can help us to see a living Christ. He went on to explain that um, African Christians have no difficulty in identifying with the suffering of Jesus Christ, but they have much difficulty in believing in the resurrection of Christ. Because if Christ were alive, then why is it that men and women and children still starve? Why is there such a problem with those in the richest nations on earth withholding the things that could save millions of lives in Africa? If Christ is alive, where are the people who not only with their lips, but with their lives, proclaim his living presence? How can we expect people to believe, to think of Jesus as more than a ghost, or an abstract ideal if we do not show the risen christ in our lives if people cannot see and touch the gospel in our flesh how can we who have been called to be a kingdom of priests serving god the father who can how can we who have been called to be witnesses of jesus who loved and freed us how can we say to folks look he's coming If we ourselves are not what people can point to and say, I have a glimpse of what is coming by the way that you live and serve. The Church of Jesus Christ must be a preview of a coming attraction. It has to be something like the enticing trailer of a soon-to-be-released primetime special. Or as that great missiologist Leslie Newbigin put it, the church must be the hermeneutic of the gospel. What he meant was, we must interpret the good news to the people who ask, will you be there for me? In such a way that they can see and touch the risen Christ when they see and touch us. Just as a man who was lame was cared for by Peter and John and came to know the healing ministry of the risen Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is revolutionary stuff we're talking about. We might get accused of turning the world upside down like the church will in the book of Acts. But it's nothing any more extraordinary than just living together as a community of committed disciples who have come to know the reality of the risen Lord. So again, note the connection in our text in the book of Acts here between divine deeds and human words because it teaches us that our witness to the good news is credible only insofar as we live as those who believe the message and are willing to stake our lives on it. There are those churches, you know, who want to focus only on evangelism, and there are those churches that are only concerned about social justice issues. But evangelism and justice are not separable. Loving our neighbor, working for prison reform, promoting peace, caring for the widow and the orphan, these aren't things that we do apart from proclaiming the good news. They're necessary part of the good news. As Justo Gonzalez, uh, a Cuban theologian who has been in the United States for many years and is a New Testament scholar, wrote, evangelism must be grounded on the spirituality of the reign of God or it is not the good news of Jesus Christ. When Peter preached and the people saw embodied embodied evidence of its truth, at least 5,000 people said, I want to be a part of what this is all about. In Washington, D.C., there's a wonderful church known as the Church of the Savior. I got to visit it one time. Uh, In fact, I was only visiting one of its nine congregations throughout D.C., And a woman welcomed us at the door when we arrived. She told me that she relocated to Washington just to become a part of this church. Now, as amazing as that sounds, I wasn't surprised. I had anticipated her story because I had read of a woman named Meg, who had gotten locked into a life of alcoholism and prostitution, but who had found her way to this church, where eventually the love of that congregation help to transform her life. And she admitted, at first, I thought these people were crazy. And then I didn't care what they were. I suddenly wanted what they had. You know, if our account in Luke is the same incident that we hear reported here in John, twenty, that we hear reported in John chapter 20, these disciples in Luke's gospel account are locked in a room because of fear of the Jews, the Jewish authorities because they fear that they will meet the same fate as their leader. But now, like them, we who no longer need to remain locked in the fears of this world have been sent to be sacramentals, embodied signs that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so that those who believe might have life and learn the freedom that comes acknowledging his risen lordship that earth's despair may cease beneath the shadow of his healing peace may it be so in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen